This episode is sponsored by Krim. Krim skillfully designs and manufactures professional coffee equipment like their Onyx manual espresso machines, Coffee Queen filter brewers, and Unity, their fully automatic coffee makers. These sleek, versatile, and reliable machines come with proactive service plans to ensure a differentiated and seamless coffee experience for coffee professionals and enthusiasts. Find out more at crim.coffee. You're listening to The Coffee Podcast. This is The Coffee Science Series. Wild Coffee When we think about the genus Caffea, we tend to bifurcate species into Caffea arabica and Caffea conifera, aka robusta. In other words, when you skim the aisles of the grocery store, or in COVID times look online for coffee, you might see labels that say things like 100% Arabica. Rarely do you see a bag bragging about its Robusta heritage. And we have touched on this a little already in the series. Coffee agricultural research points to many other Caffea species. In this episode, we are joined by Aaron Davis of Royal Botanical Gardens Q, or RBGQ for short. More than 20 years ago, it was back in 1997, I started working in coffee research and I was working in what we call fundamental research and there were a few really basic questions which we didn't have answers to at that time. My remit was to understand how many coffee species there were in the wild, where they grew and what they looked like. It sounds crazy, that was the, the end of the 20th century, uh, that we still didn't know those sort of basic facts. Now when mm. I started doing that work, coffee was known from Africa and Madagascar. And although Africa was fairly well known, Madagascar was a bit of a black box. We didn't know what was going on there in terms of coffee species diversity. So I started a three-year project exploring Madagascar with colleagues uh, from Madagascar to find as many new species as possible and understand as much as possible about the wild mm. coffee species of Madagascar. And concurrently, I was also looking at species in Africa. So it was really just to see what was growing in the wild in terms of wild coffee species diversity. And at that time, we, we thought there may be 40, 60 species. And to our surprise, after, after the three-year project and a few years afterwards, we ended up with nearly 100 species. And then following that, we added some more through molecular investigation. And today we're looking at around 125, 130 species. So we're not talking about varieties. We're talking about... Yeah, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. So I, I think there's a lot of confusion, difference between a species and a variety or what we call a cultivar. When we talk about species, species are things like Arabica, Robusta, and Liberica, mm -hmm. whereas the varieties are things like Geisha, Nuvomundo, Katura. Mm -hmm. They're the varieties of either Arabica or Robusta. So when we're talking about species, we're talking about things that are very, very different and would look different. 
behave differently and occur in different places. Gotcha. Also, just so we can understand the words here, because we're going to be using the word wild quite a bit, I think, here in this conversation. What makes a coffee species wild versus being not wild? I'd imagine Arabica is not wild. Arabica is wild and Robusta is wild. They both still occur in forests in Africa. Okay. So they are wild species, but over the last few centuries, they've been domesticated or moderately domesticated for use in coffee farming. So yeah, Arabica and Robusta are amongst those 125 odd species. So it's anything that you find in the wild that's not being manipulated or influenced at all by humankind. If you went to Madagascar, you would find 60-odd species in the wild that weren't being cultivated or used as a crop plant. Okay. Um, So it sounds like, based on what you were teaching me even off the mic, the research you were doing uh, in that context was more of the fundamental nature. Absolutely. Look, when I started, although although I was an ardent coffee drinker, the concept that what I was doing was in any way involved with coffee production, coffee farming, just didn't really occur to me or click you know, mm-hmm. in, in any sense because it was so fundamental. It wasn't what we call applied research. And then as time went on, I got more involved in applied research, which, which is something we'll talk about in a little bit later. Okay, so it's just important, I think, for us now as we're listening, as we move forward, to understand that there is a difference between fundamental and applied research and then agricultural research being a branch of applied research. Exactly. And I think many of your listeners will know something about coffee research, will maybe have read some of the blogs or listened to some of the podcasts. But I think it's important to emphasize there's a huge amount of coffee research going on all around the world in many, many different disciplines. Some of it's applied, some of it's fundamental, uh, some of it's to do with health, etc. So lots of people doing lots of coffee research, and there are many different branches of research, people looking at different aspects of coffee. One that we're going to talk about today is agricultural research or ag research. And that's really how the plant behaves as a crop. Uh, and so it's related to the farming of coffee. Okay, so plant behavior is going to be key for us moving forward. Plant behavior, whether that's how it responds to the environment and where you can grow the coffee or productivity or how the plant responds to different variables such as processing mm-hmm. and how that might influence okay. taste, consumer perceptions. Can you fill in the gaps for us on why does the industry, the sector, coffee history kind of only care about the two main species, Arabica and, and, and Robusta? If you went back, let's say, even 150 years, but particularly 200 years, we essentially uh, would have been talking about Arabica. Okay. Then at the beginning of the 20th century, Robusta came into cultivation. It was, of course, originally a wild plant. And the reason that it came into cultivation was because there were some farming or production issues with Arabica, particularly around things like coffee leaf rusts, specific pests, etc. So, you know, Robusta came in to fill the gaps, as it were, and to resolve some of those mm-hmm. issues. Okay. And by and large, those two species fulfill our requirements. You know, they're productive. Arabica has all the preferred taste differential. Robusta is very productive, uh, in some cases easier to grow. So in essence, the focus was on those two species Mm -hmm. because we really didn't need anything else. Interestingly, if you would have gone back 100 years, we would have seen more coffee species being cultivated, such as um, Liberica and Stenophylla. But those two species were so successful and fulfilled, as I say, our, our needs that we just 
stayed. With okay. Them. Yeah, it's kind of a convenient slash just it it filled the gap. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, they by and large, despite some key issues um they they've they've served us very well you've been a part of all kinds of uh research in coffee and one of the things you were involved in uh was a fascinating project where you uh i think in the team you were working with discovered that some 100 percent arabica coffees were not 100 percent is that is that the proper understanding of what the discoveries that's correct and that surprise that surprised us so we did a review of 100% Arabica supermarket coffees. You know, went out to the shops, bought 100% Arabicas, and then put them through a chemical testing process. And what we found was that 10% of those 100% Arabicas were adulterated with Robusta. <laughs> um, how that happens, yeah. I don't know. You know, one thing I think is really interesting is how it, that exemplifies the way that coffee crop species have shifted and are continuing to shift. Now, when I started doing coffee research 20 years ago, uh, the world was drinking maybe 80% Arabica and 20% Robusta. Now the figure's something close to 70% Arabica and 30% Robusta. Or in fact, it's probably more likely 60% Arabica and 40% Robusta. But I think the figure's even higher than that because clearly there's a lot of adulteration going on. This isn't a topic for today, but it also reinforces for me, the distrust of labels. It's clearly been an issue for the coffee sector. Uh, packaging, uh, labeling, uh, particularly traceability. Mm -hmm. Are we getting what we've paid for? Is, is the roaster getting what they paid for? And, you know, traceability has been a major issue. I think there are other issues involved around the packaging as well, and, mm -hmm. and one of them is, is certification. Yeah. I don't believe that the purchaser is fully aware of, of what that means. As we go forward, that has to change. There's no doubt about it that coffee is, is a major cause of deforestation. And we could be fueling that deforestation by inappropriate or misguided uh, or cryptic consumer choices. Interesting. Is deforestation something you'd like to talk about now? Or is it something you want to revisit at a different part of our conversation? What I'm seeing now is there are many claims, um, even outside certification, on how good that coffee is for the environment or claims of being less damaging. The way of actually understanding and measuring that just isn't there at the moment. And I think it absolutely has to be. And what I'm seeing now is, you know, a shift in the way that we try and deal with deforestation. So, you know, we're moving into an era where legislation is coming into effect that will hopefully reduce deforestation by making sure that the beef we eat, the vegetables that we eat or whatever, haven't caused deforestation. And for coffee, I'm afraid, it has been a major cause of deforestation, as I've said. Mm. Uh, on the other side of the coin, coffee can be a, an object of positive change, positive influence. If we look at production systems, say, in Ethiopia or in parts of Costa Rica, mm -hmm. then we'll see actually that coffee farming can be a cause of stabilizing deforestation or preventing deforestation. Does it have to do with shade growing? or what Yeah, it's the... largely to do with shade growing, Okay, not just the fact that there's shade, but how much shade, what okay. kind of shade, mm -hmm. what treatments, what um, what's being done to the soil, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, at the moment, you could have an agroforestry system with, say, three trees per square kilometre or 3,000 trees per square kilometre. But 
the packaging might still say agroforestry or forest friendly. Mm-hmm. Now, I, and I think we need to do something about that. And okay. indeed, yeah. the way that technology is changing, we now have the tools to be able to say whether that coffee is caused deforestation, mm-hmm. how much shade is provided, quality of the forest, the amount of forest, the amount of canopy cover. Yeah. So there are now more powerful technologies for us to be able to quantify those aspects and pass that information on to the consumer. I'm just trying to drive some sort of positive change in, in that area. So it sounds like it requires research, right? That stuff doesn't just happen. So like we might have the tools and all of that stuff, but somebody's, so the research has to happen, but somebody's got to pay for the research. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a, I know we're going to talk about that yeah. a little bit uh, later in our conversation, but for now, let's roll it back. Let's talk about Arabica and Robusta. And let me stop there because I've been saying Robusta for probably two <laughs> or three series now. <laughs> and I used <laughs> I used to say Robusta and I heard somebody say Robusta and I said to myself, oh, I must be saying it wrong. And <laughs> <laughs> and this is kind of like uh, data and data. It's like, is it data? Yeah. Is it data? What can you can you help us? So does it matter? I, you know what? It doesn't really matter as long as you understand what people are okay. talking about. Robusta, robust. I've always said robusta um, because it comes from being robust. Right. Uh, that makes sense. Um, as a scientist, I often talk in you know, using Latin names instead of common names okay uh, but even there there's confusion about pronunciation so um, <laughs> okay. robusta robusta um, okay yeah, i don't think it's too too critical yeah. okay good as long as good. people understand so we're in this, and you know we're if we were clear. in south america or brazil we would say carnelon so oh, okay okay we're, we're in the clear so we'll keep going yeah i'll keep saying yeah. robusta I'll, I'll just stick to my guns there <laughs> <laughs> so if arabica and robusta are so prominent why should we, as an industry, as people who drink coffee, care about other species? There's, there's a couple of reasons. Um, well, there's a number of reasons, in fact. Some are probably more pressing th- than others. The main reason, of course, is we're in an era of climate change, accelerated climate change. And one thing that's clear to us through the research that we've done is that Arabica and Robusta will not provide us with the resilience we need to go forward through the century. Now, let me just dig into that a little bit more because we could get on with just using Robusta and Arabica for many decades, but that would require the coffee growing landscape of the world to shift as the climate shifts. And there are all sorts of consequences surrounding that shift. I think one of the major ones is people. People can't move. So let's think about those coffee growing families that have grown coffee for many generations. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be able to move even within their own country, let alone to other countries. So that's a major issue. So ultimately, what you're trying to do is to keep people where they live, where they've grown up, etc. The other problem, of course, with shifting coffee zones is that you're likely to come up against rainforest and natural systems. And what you don't want to do is cause further deforestation through coffee, accelerated deforestation, because it's a vicious circle. If you remove forest, you're adding to the issues of climate change. Mm. You're removing the carbon sinks. It's all interrelated. Yeah. Um, and then I guess, you know, if we're talking about a speciality audience, and it's something that I'm kind of discussing on a regular basis, is that the speciality industry is always looking for differentiation. They're always looking for the next big thing, the next taste, something exciting, something stimulating, something differentiated. And I think there is, well, there is the potential there with, with the wild species. They do have, in some cases, really quite different 
taste profiles. Hmm. Um, not to everybody's taste. They are selling, they are popular, they are in demand. And then you've got things like Eugenioides, which I think is the best tasting coffee. Uh, I think it's hmm. absolutely fantastic. Yeah, so it's it's about all things that I've said, big issues, but also it's about enjoyment. It's about yeah. enjoying coffee and getting more experiences from coffee. I think a lot of you know the listeners are thinking like, what are these wild coffees or these other wild coffees taste like? Um, you mentioned, uh, what, Eugenoides, is that right? It was interesting. I gave a talk at the SCA, Speciality Coffee Association um, Symposium in 2012. One of the questions that I had afterwards was like, yeah, but you didn't say what they tasted like, you know, all these wild species. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh my goodness, you're absolutely right. I, I don't know what they taste like. So um, <laughs> we've, been, <laughs> we've, been, we've been trying to do something about that. And we've been seeking out as many wild species as possible with the purpose of, of seeing what they taste like. We have tasted several species over the last uh, two or three years. Some of them have been really interesting, interesting in a good way. Yeah. Some of them have been interesting in not such a good way. Right. Um, whether those are inherent characteristics of those coffees, we're not quite sure. Mm -hmm. uh, they could be improved with processing, perhaps. But even of those that we've tasted, what we see is considerable promise and other things as well such as low caffeine content um, which mm. might add a, a different dimension uh, to this discussion yeah yeah um yeah interestingly enough we we're cupping hopefully next week two species that have to our knowledge never ever been cupped before um those are oh, from wow. west africa and okay. then we're cupping yeah. another three species which probably haven't been cupped properly for over 100 years yeah but we know from um books and other literature that they do have uh, an agreeable taste. Okay. And then we're going to cup a couple of hybrid species. So that's where two species have been crossed. Mm -hmm. uh, so watch this space, I would say. Yeah, keep an eye, keep an eye on it. Certainly, we're seeing um, some real promise, not only in terms of taste, but also in terms of productivity. It's no good having a great taste unless you can grow this coffee successfully. Mm, yeah. So there's all sorts of other things to consider, not only other than taste, but of course, taste is, is a major characteristic of a successful coffee. You had told me while we were planning this uh, conversation that coffee ag research, the sector itself is poorly understood by the rest of the coffee world. What did you mean when you said that? I think there's quite a gap, a communication gap, an understanding between scientists and large parts of the coffee sector, should we say, um, particularly purchasers, um, the larger purchasers. And it's a difficult one because different scientists, of course, have different opinions. They disagree on what exactly needs to be done to safeguard coffee and, and to, to, to move coffee forward. And there are all these voices with different opinions. I think it's incredibly difficult for anybody outside of that arena to, to differentiate between what needs to be done and what doesn't need to be done, mm -hmm. what's important, what's not important. So I see a lot of confusion at the moment as to how we should focus our resources to make sure we're tackling the big issues in coffee how you do that i don't know yeah because everybody's entitled to their voice everybody has their opinion mm -hmm. uh, I, I guess eventually the solutions come to fruition and you only know retrospectively what was what was worth doing <laughs> but in terms of agricultural research i think we're, we're now way behind where we should be oh, okay. um, back in the 40s and the 50s there was a lot of excellent 
agricultural research in coffee. There's still great work being undertaken in South America and Brazil, where I think our knowledge gap is really, really lacking is our understanding of what's going to happen to coffee farming under climate change in a precise sense. We know it's going to be negatively impacted. We need to know how to associate um, the climate change projections with the performance of coffee farming. And I don't think we've really started on that in the way that we should. To me, it sounds like you just answered part of my next question. Why is it so important to know what kind of research to fund right now? Because we have these daunting things coming around the corner, climate change. Are there any other reasons you think it's critical for us to be able to discern as an industry what kind of research to focus on? I mean, there are clear topics. Climate change, producer, farmer, profitability, traceability, deforestation. There are some really clear issues that, of course, we all know about, but it's about how you tackle them Mm -hmm. and what you use to, to address those problems. Uh, and I don't think they they are clear cut at the moment. And I particularly climate change is such a yeah. you know, such a multi faceted, complicated subject that um, understanding it alone is complicated. Let alone doing anything about it. Yeah. Um, we really need to get our skates on. I'd say yeah. we're running out of time. We we need to make those decisions about what research is important and act on them right away because we're, we're losing time. The current pandemic, is, I think, is a good example of that, where we were putting funds into understanding these pandemics and though that funding was cut. And now look at where we are. Yeah. Um, and it exemplifies some of, some of the issues. Not quite the same, but yeah. um, you know, it's better to, to look at prevention rather than the issues really hit home. Um, you know, then it's even more difficult to deal with them. Like uh, preparedness or readiness for exactly. what's coming. Yeah. yeah. From your seat, you said all scientists have their own opinions. Obviously, some groups will agree, some will disagree on what to prioritize. What do you consider to be the most important challenges for coffee ag research right now? You mentioned climate change uh, and a few others, but from your seat specifically, what do you what do you really think if you could narrow it down to one or two? Yeah, I think we have to um, seriously look at drought. Um, and, and you know, in in various in various ways, but I think we need to um, look for or produce plants that will be able to withstand um, extreme climatic conditions or different climatic conditions, um, and we need to correspond those. Um, uh, that that research, or you know, with the climate change projections. So mm-hmm. something I've always said is like, there's no good spending 30 years on producing a coffee that's one degree more climate tolerant or can withstand 10% less moisture if there's going to be a five degree increase in temperature yeah. and a 50% mm-hmm. reduction in moisture. Uh, so it's it's about understanding, you know. All those complex interactions, and particularly the climate change, linking the climate change projections to the performance of the plants um, on the farm, to make sure that in 50 years' time or whenever we have the plants that we need to be able to cope with the conditions in that time space. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. We talked about ag research. We talked about the challenges um, there are in, you know, even that sector being understood. Is the coffee research sector competitive? I, yeah, over the last, I think particularly the last decade, coffee research has become very competitive. I think there's a certain cachet about being in coffee research that's attracted a lot of new researchers. Uh, I think particularly as the speciality movement gathered momentum, which is great. You know, it's always good to have more researchers. But um, in order to do research, you need funding. Right. The problem now is that we've got a lot of people chasing what seems to be now a diminishing pot of uh, funds <laughs> to do their research. Mm-hmm. And again, it ties back into the question is how do decision makers know which research to fund? Yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 increasingly competitive. You know, competition can be a force for good. It can push coffee research, accelerate research, give it more momentum. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I spend a lot of my time just chasing money to do the work that we feel that's important. It seems like a really challenging problem to sort of be what might seem like banging a symbol to people, you know, saying, hey, this is important work. I mean, something like climate change, like you mentioned, is such a complex thing to even understand. So to have somebody foot the bill of some research there in coffee sounds like such a long, difficult thing to have to convince somebody of. That's unfortunate. Uh, there are a number of people doing coffee climate change research. And, yeah. Um, who gets funded? It's down to your track record, where you publish, the quality of your science. Increasingly, it's about how you market your research. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think particularly if you're looking at private sector funding, uh, but increasingly even you know, government and state funding, there's a lot of other aspects involved now that weren't there, uh, say, a decade ago. Um, and, you know, you have to market yourself, market your research, mm-hmm. make sure you're being read and listened to, etc. It's a tougher space than it was a decade ago, that's for sure. We're going to focus a little bit on on you, what you're working on, what you're passionate about. How can our listeners be a part of what you have in the pipeline? I've had an incredible amount of support from coffee companies, roasters, baristas. Yeah. Um, you know, they're excited about what we're doing. And, and some of that translates into, into funding. So, you know, we, we are getting a lot of support from a broad spectrum of actors in the coffee world, which is great. What I'd like to see going forward is some engagement with what we're trying to do around sustainability, traceability, and deforestation. And I keep saying everything's sort of linked and tied in. And what you have to remember is that deforestation is a major driver of climate change. Right. So, yeah. So it's no good patching up one area if we're driving it in another. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'd really like people you know, to engage with that and under- try and understand what we're trying to achieve around the bigger picture sustainability issue. I think that's really important. I was listening to a, a radio show about five years ago, and there was a, a senior researcher. Unfortunately, I've forgotten her name. Fantastic interview about her work on autism. She concluded her interview by saying that science is a search for the truth. And, mm. and then she explained what that meant. And I absolutely passionately believe about this that's what we're trying to do we're trying to find the truth we're trying to understand exactly what's happening or exactly what needs to be done and for me i think that's one of the one of my bugbears about research is that the way that research world works is that sometimes the truth isn't told because there are there are other motivations for not telling the truth or not being explicit or clear right um and i i see it all the time and that's just, in my opinion, a complete disservice to yourself and to society. So I think we have to be honest. And that's what, when we publish our work, we try to 
include all the caveats. Uh, we try to explain the research as accurately as possible, and I think it's really important. Labels deceive us again and again, don't they? Whether intentionally or not. And contrary to what I believed before the series, we have a lot of genetic opportunity in the other coffee species that are out there in the wild. In the next episode, we talk a little bit about just how these opportunities might benefit the coffee sector and the future of coffee. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, and until next time, happy brewing.